Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, and welcome to this episode of The Hedge. Hey, Tom, I'm glad you're back with us tonight. You and your, yep, I'm here. You and your plant and your yep. globe. Awesome. Great. And tonight we have with us Jeff Tensura, who is, I don't know, sitting in the dark. I don't know what's up with Jeff. Maybe he's trying to grow mushrooms. You never can tell with him. <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> and you sit in the dark to configure routers? I cannot do it any other way. Oh, oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. Yep, great. Awesome. And so tonight as our guest, we have Daniel. Daniel, I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce your last name. You're going to have to say it for me. It's Daniel Teshney. Thanks. Thanks, Ross. Teshney. Thanks, Tom. Right. Thanks, Jeff. And where are you, Daniel, physically? Yeah, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, not to be confused okay. with Melbourne, Florida. Good. Yes. I was actually there in January uh, for uh, APNIC. I was speaking at APNIC and I went out to dinner with a couple of folk I know there. And then I went out on the Great Ocean Road. It was really, really cool. It's a, it was a great trip out to the Great Ocean Road. So, Tom, this is all about open source. So I'm going to let you open for open source and then we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> nice. See what you did there. Um, there was... Um... On the Packet Pushers, there was a podcast that Daniel was a guest at um, in the topic. I just I just thought the the episode was really well done and um, loved the back and forth and the the very nuanced discussion that was happening there. And it just inspired me to think of a couple of other things that I wanted to sort of just continue that discussion. The, the topic of that discussion was uh, basically open source versus commercial software in the context of, of uh, network operations and, you know, supporting network infrastructure. And, um, yeah, I, I thought... There were some some great points that you guys discussed. Um, a few of them, I think, deserve a little bit more explanation and or exploration, I guess. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to to jump into that. Um, and I guess just to get started, one of the things that, that kept coming to my mind as I was listening to that episode was the the whole idea of the the sort of like dichotomous nature of the two um, that it you know that it either has to be open source or it has to be commercial. Um, and that's really interesting for discussion purposes, but the more I listened to it, the more I thought, why can't we use the, the Unix philosophy of lots of small tools chained together? And then you choose the ones that work, choose the open source ones and the commercial ones and the combinations that you want. And, um, you know, maybe that's a w another way to look at this. So that's kind of what I wanted to open with a little bit and, and, uh, I don't know, get, get y'all's thoughts. So, on so my first challenge to that is going to be, are there any really open source tools available? That have no commercial counterpart or no, have no commercial support. Does anybody know of any? There are a few small ones maintained by individuals, but like FR routing is open source, but yet it's really by and large commercial software. So are those actually opposing categories? <laughs> what do you think, Daniel? Do you know of any? No, not not really. I mean, it's just a if we think about it more in terms of what the outcome is that we're trying to achieve, there's there's commercial or open source options to to deliver against that outcome. So, um, yeah, I don't. Okay. I I think that they're a little bit different. I don't think that um, it's an either or scenario. 
you know, I think it's an either or. I mean, I guess my point was, is that there is really no such thing as non-commercial software that I know of, except very small projects. Um, there are closed source commercial products and their projects, and there are open source okay. commercial projects. But I don't know of any actual open source non-commercial projects. I mean, Bird, I guess, but Bird is maintained by a quasi, it's maintained by, by, by a nonprofit, what we'd say in the U.S. is a 5031C type yeah. of thing. Um, so I think that's funded by somebody. Jeff, you know of any that are truly open source? Go BGP? I don't know. Pretty much so, everything. Go BGP is, is pretty open. Uh, I would say it's not. But, really it has, but it has commercial support, right? Uh, I would argue that what NTT provides is in no way commercial support. Okay. So, right. No. So no. Okay. So Go BGP might be the exception. Uh, well, and I, I don't, I would expand yeah. this beyond just uh, routing stacks. I'm not just talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. open source of routing course, stacks. Yes. I'm talking about all tools that you would use. Right. Like, is that a database? You would probably use a database if you're writing some, you know, there's, there's open source options there and there's commercial options there. And right, right, right. That sort of thing. But most, most open source options are open source options because they're freemium. And there's a company that's standing there saying, we will sell you support if you want it. And that's how they're paying the developers who are working on the open source project. That's kind of my general understanding of most of the open source projects that I've messed with. Uh, I don't know. I think, it, I think it depends. Um, okay. Yeah. I don't think that um, every single one is, is backed by, you know, a uniform entity that's looking to sell you services. Um, okay. If we just talk about automation frameworks, uh, there's a framework called Nornir, which isn't backed by a central company or a central team of developers. It's more a collective of automation professionals across multiple companies that use their intelligence and IP together to deliver a solution for multiple people. So that's maybe a, an example of one where it's not just one company developing any, you know, in right. quotation marks, open source software so that they can then capitalize on the market by um, offering commercial support. Nornir is an interesting example because it consumes other open source projects itself. It depends on other open source projects to operate, right? Nornir needs Napalm. It also needs NetMiko. And these are projects that are not associated. There's, NetMiko is, is uh, you could say it has a small scope. I wouldn't say it's a small product, not to downplay it or anything, but it's certainly not the sort of thing that somebody would go start a company to sell, right? Yep. NetMiko is, is a component that you use, mm -hmm. and it's an open source project. It has nothing to do with commercial offerings. So I think that there are tools, and especially as the, as the tools get smaller and smaller in scope, um, they get more towards this sort of community-oriented community uh, open source uh, sort of okay. sort of effort. Okay. So now going back to your original question, Tom, you were saying that you thought, why not just be able to string tools together? So let's talk about that a little bit. What does that look like to you and Daniel? I mean, how does that how does that play out? So that's in my mind. That's uh, say you need to do some network monitoring. Um, you have a couple of choices to make, a bunch of choices to make on this road. You could go buy a commercial package that does. 80% of what you need. And in my experience, I've never been able to buy commercial software for network monitoring specifically that ever did many more than 85, 80 or 85% of what I need. I swear it doesn't exist anywhere. Yep. Um, and so, so you either get something that does 85% of what you need and then you just live without the other 15% or you go get something to put it together to get the other 15% or you sort of manually do the other 15%. Um, or the other the other fork in the road you could take is, okay, well, I'll just go get the components myself. Um, I need some sort of time series database. Uh, I need something to go grab the metrics from the devices. I need something, perhaps I need a message bus. I probably need a database to hold the configuration. 
Um, you know, that's to me that, so that's another way to look at it. Got a bunch of components. I'm going to stitch them together myself. And that's generally going to be open source, although it could be commercial components as well. So like Prometheus plus Sauce Stack or Ansible plus yeah, yeah. whatever else, like MySQL or some back database backend or something like that, and pull it all together yourself by stringing things together. So what do you think, Daniel? You think that's pretty common? You think people are doing that? Yeah. And I also think that um, trending forward, there's going to be a lot of for lack of a better term, middle box integrations where people are going to take maybe a commercial platform and an open source platform and then uh, you know take inputs from one system and feed them into outputs of other systems. So you know a, a classic example might be um, you have your monitoring platform and instead of sending emails, you know you might um, ingest those alerts using webhooks and then post them you know to, uh, IRC, you know, Slack, WebEx, and Microsoft Teams style communication. So to move away from that traditional, uh, you know, getting thousands of emails to uh, sending sending messaging using a, a middle box system to ingest and then populate those alerts out to other systems. Okay. So Jeff, any thoughts on this? Is this pretty common in your world? Do you think people are putting pulling together things using open source projects and stuff? Yes. Um, or is this kind of unusual? I think pretty usual because there are a bunch of really good and very active projects where hundreds of people contributing code. I mean, FRR is the best example, right? On itself, it's open source. You can take the code and modify in a way you like. But if you look who is mostly contributing, there are commercial entities, like being NVIDIA or Old Cumulus, being VMware and other people. There are also a lot of people who we don't know who took FRR and building their routing on top of it, right? There are a bunch of security startups, there are a bunch of people who are doing it without really contributing back, which is the way it is. But the point being, they're taking open source software and putting their, I mean, secret sauce on top of it and using both. So it's very common from my perspective. I, I, I definitely agree with the, you know, who's contributing. Uh, that is obviously heavily tilted toward, um, you know, people who are who write software for a living or for their own operations, for sure. There's another aspect of this that I kind of wanted to think about, and it's an idea that I Pete Lumbus kind of discussed with us here on the hedge uh, some time ago. And that's the, you know, you, you think about if I'm going to consume open source, then I then I should do something to to give back, right? I should contribute something to it. I should at least take my use case, make sure it's documented, that sort of thing. Um, if not, you know, contribute bug fixes and things like that. But he brought up another idea that I thought was interesting, and the the way he labeled it was um, consumption as contribution. And basically his argument is as more and more people consume a product, uh, consume an open source project and participate with the community. And that's the big, the big hook there and participate with the community. Just their consumption um, is, is partially adding value back into the project. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think about that? I'd have to agree with that um, because, you know, anyone developing anything, you know, mentally can only compute a finite amount of use cases and just by having more people exposed to it, you're going to get more perspectives, uh, different perspectives, different experience levels, different backgrounds. So um, having people actually consume, consume a product, they might come from a completely different angle and therefore that may, may make you fundamentally rethink of how this abstraction is actually delivered. I think another aspect of that is that as from a, development perspective, as somebody who participates in the development side of open source projects from time to time and has done coding and et cetera in the past, and even as an author, blah, 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 
there is a sense at which if you have somebody consuming something, it motivates you to work on whatever it is that's being consumed. And it helps build the community because the community itself is really, really important. And the more consumers you have, the more people you're going to have who are going to want to say, I want to jump in and help with this because now I see a place where people are, I can impact people's lives. I can impact people's operations. Um, I see you shaking your head over there, Jeff. Do you have anything to add to yeah, that? Yes, so I think basic community reciprocation, uh, you do something for someone else, person feels, if not obliged, at least he would be, would be really glad to, to give you back, to give the community back. So in this kind of projects, when people actively engaging, helping each other, you see really good results and people are really engaged. So I actually have an example of that, Russ. I, um, this was years ago, but I was interacting with the FRR community and I don't know if he wants to be mentioned by name, so I won't, but, um, I was, I was super impressed by the way he handled things. I, I jumped on the Slack group and I said, Hey, I've got, or no, I think I, I opened a bug. I opened a bug because something seemed to be wrong um, with the particular, the installation of FRR on CentOS. This was a long time ago. It's all working now, but, um, and, and he answered it and got on Slack with me and started looking and he's like, I don't, hmm, I don't get this. So can we do a screen share? And I'm like, what? Like, I have paid you $0 to do anything for me. And I'm just happy that you even looked at it, but you want to actually see the problem. So we did a screen share and, um, he ended up spending like two hours with me and we f- and figured it out. And it was something that, uh, it turned out to be a configure a default that, that probably needed to be adjusted. And I just was like, I have never gotten that kind of attention from a service contract from a vendor. Um, and you know, kind of to Jeff's point, I, after that, I was like, wow, this is a community I want to be involved with. I want to, you know, if something goes wrong, I'm going to take the time to capture debug output and, and, and be a real, even though, and no one's paying me to do that, but the community, you know, this, the people in this community as symbolized by this person just showed that, you know, you, you do that enough times and, and a community can be just as effective at delivering software uh, as a commercial entity in, in a lot of cases. And just, just to your point, uh, just back a point uh, about consumption is contribution. Not everyone has to be a developer to con- contribute to a project. Simply sharing, you know, the, the knowledge or the, the actual presence of a project can be helpful. Maybe recording a video or, or writing a blog post on, you know, an intro's, an intro user's guide to using a project, all those things can help to the overall ecosystem because, for example, you might not be able to financially contribute to the project, but by by sharing its presence and its knowledge to other people, there might be someone down the stream in your community who who is from you know a company that that starts using the project and then is able to actually you know make commercial investments in it. So I think um, my point is you I wouldn't get too caught up on you know, can I, can I actually fix code? There's, there's many other ways to actually assist open source projects. So now to work, to look at the other side, why do companies not want to say they're using open source? I mean, I've, I've been in companies before where they say, oh, we use this open source project, but we don't talk about it publicly. I mean, what are reasons behind that? You know, it's one of those crazy things, right? There's probably a, there's probably a desire to be seen as having produced the whole thing. Also sort of cynically, there are companies that I know of that consume open source and give nothing back. And, um, you know, you probably don't want to be labeled as that if, even if you're doing it right. Um, cause of the kind of, the kind of bad connotation that could go with it, I guess. 
Um, do, do you think that perhaps it, it goes to a conception that, you know, if something is quote unquote free, that it's that it's cheap and thus inferior and therefore, you know, just in, in broad, broadly speaking about life, you know, if you pay $120,000 for a car, it has to be better than a, than a $30,000 car. Therefore, if we say we use something that's, you know, in, in quotation marks free, the perception is the quality is going to be inferior. Could be. And if I'm a, if I'm a consumer, if I'm someone paying for software and I find out that 80% of it is open source, well, why didn't I just do it myself? What am I paying these guys for? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the not invented here is, is a big one, but you just said, Tom, I think that's actually a big deal. Not invented here. I think another one that you just said there, Daniel, is that people don't want to be perceived as being cheap. Other people might see it as a security issue. If I tell people I'm using MySQL, I'm exposing a set of, um, attack surfaces publicly that I probably don't want to expose. I think there are others. People just want you to believe that they're not the kind of company that uses outside help or that, you know, they just, they just don't want to let you know what they're using. Like they won't attach their name to any product ever, much less open source. And so I think those are all reasons. I don't know that they're valid. I don't, consider many of those or any of those to be valid personally. I mean, I can see a company saying, I don't want to tell anybody I use Cisco. I don't want to tell anybody I use Juniper. Okay. I get it. You don't want to endorse a brand uh, because that's your supplier. But on the other side, it can be like, you know, driving down the street with your car vendor or your um, car part supplier stuck to the side of your car, like race cars, maybe maybe you don't want to do that. That's kind of a strange way of looking at things. But on the other hand, for an open source project, I mean, what's the harm? Through obscurity, never really worked, right? People say, oh, if you don't know the code, you cannot break it. The opposite is true. The more eyes you have, yeah. the better your software is going to be tested, validated, just reviewed. If your stuff is done within your company, most likely people are biased. So you, you don't see the thing because you're so familiar with it. And it happened many, many times. So at the end, open source, good open source software is usually more secure, more robust, and better than a lot of non-open source software. Yeah. And, and that's something I wanted to bring up here is that, you know, when you talk, Tom, about chaining together software that's open sourcing and, and based on commercial closed source type things, and try to string them together to create a system, you're actually adding a bit of complexity to your network and to your environment. That there's a there's a serious trade-off to think about there. And one of those trade-offs is supply chain security. Another one is just flat out, you know, key law, the first corollary to key law, which is you can understand your system and you can understand the adjacent systems to yours okay. But beyond that, you're kind of working on rumor and pop psychology. So how much of that plays into open source um, and how, I mean, how does that resolve itself? Is there something in there that needs to be thought about if you're doing this type of thing? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that there are extreme ends of the continuum. Like you could go all the way and say every single little piece I'm going to go get from a separate um, open source project. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of science projects out there that, that, that do, that do that sort of thing. Um, but then you can also go all the other way and say, I have to get everything from one commercial software supplier or from one open source project. I think the value um, comes in, in finding the balance and the trade-off. Um, maybe 
maybe it's totally fine that my commercial monitoring package does 85% about what I want. Maybe that is by design. Um, but I would, I would say there's value to be gained in saying, don't just give up on the other 15%, um, go find a project that fills that gap in and, and make your purchase decision for the commercial software, not based upon it can do everything I want, but based upon it has open enough interfaces and has enough extensibility that I can plug it into something else. I think that, and that, and finding that balance between, you know, how big do the components need to be or how small can they be? Um, is really a function of your staff, um, you know, your organization's interest in taking I, using IT as a strategic differentiator. That tells you what your balance could be of, you know, how you put the things together. But to me, that's the that's the fun of doing what we do. Um, building systems to me is is totally fun. I I it's a lot more fun than getting a thing from a vendor that says, "Here's a big manual. Call it. Run these five commands, and then if it doesn't work, give us a call." Some people like that. It's totally fine for them. For me personally, I want to build systems. And so that's kind of where do you take the components from and how big are the components, I think, are the questions. I think the other another danger in the string it together idea is I know of commercial products shipping right now, and you might have it in your network, and I won't give you the names, that are built on 85% of it or 50% of whatever is built on open source stuff, projects. But there are four databases in the project. It's being shipped commercially with four, for four different databases in it. And yeah, maybe I can get away with Redis and MySQL or something like that. But at some point you have to say, you know what, guys, just stop slapping pieces together and start using the pieces that are already in there. And Or if the piece isn't in there in the first place that's right, go find a new piece that'll do it and warp the project around that new piece that'll actually make it work right. So I think this is also a danger people get into with open sources. Well, I can grab this over here and that over there, and I can grab that over there. And then I, and then I end up compiling in, you know, the entire Linux kernel because I want VI as a text editor, you know, and now you get all this garbage and you're like, all these lines of code, look how big my project is. And all this memory is taking up and yeah, well, 90% of it's not being used. That's just a tax surface. Thanks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that um, comes down to like a primary concern of abstraction versus control, which um, if we, if we go back to, to Tom's example of, you know, the closed box product with the manual, there's maximum abstraction offered and you can only do finite amount of things. So if that aligns to the overall business objectives, of, you know, we want things to stay, you know, very simple, very predictable. We're not after feature velocity. We're not after, um, you know, being able to respond to agile business needs or whatever, then having that abstraction offered for you is a good thing. However, if you, if the company perceives, you know, IT as somewhere that should be innovating or offering new features or offering, uh, you know, being able to respond to changing market conditions, like they might be a company that performs a lot of mergers and acquisitions, then you're, you're tied, you're tied to that ship, you're tied to that, whatever that abstraction is. So you won't be able to actually make any customizations or, or adjust accordingly. You'll be largely tied to that commercial product and, and their strategic objectives and whatever they are willing to offer. So I'm not saying that either either is better, but it's just understanding your business as a whole more so than, you know, maybe what it is that me or you want to do. Because if you try and do something that's, you know, fundamentally against what the business is trying to do, you're essentially going to be 
um, you know, a person with a with a paddle um, trying to trying to paddle against you know wherever the Titanic's going, and you'll probably cause yourself a lot of stress and uh, you know be unpopular within the organization. Yeah, yeah, I so I think that that idea of aligning with what your what your business what your business's um, strategic objectives are is is critical. And if you are in the scenario where you are, your business does want IT to be a strategic asset and not just a cost center, and you insist on using only on maximum abstraction, you're leaving a lot of features and functionality on the table, but you're also, I think, leaving money on the table too. It's not, it's not just that your shiny thing isn't cool. Um, I think that you're, you're potentially sinking a lot of money into support contracts. You're sinking a lot of money into things that go to benefit that vendor's other customers um, and not necessarily you. And that, that, that whole idea of, of competitive differentiation, like one of the, one of the things that came up in the, in the other podcast was the, if some other customer wants a feature and you want it too, it's more likely that it will, that it will be implemented by the vendor. That's totally true. If five other people want it, then it's even more likely. And if you're on board with a hundred other customers, awesome. You're probably going to get it funded because the vendor is going to easily see a business case, internal business case to make that. But then all of you have the same feature. You, you are no longer differentiated. And so if that's, if that aligns with, with business priorities, then that's great. But if you're trying to become, if you're trying to offer something differentiated based on IT infrastructure and you're depending on your competitors to reinforce the need for this product, product, well, then what you're doing by definition is not differentiated. Um, and I think that that's, it's, it's a way to look at, um, you know, cause it always seems to be a power thing, right? Like the, the vendor has a certain amount of power and you don't. And the only way you get power is by banding together with other customers, but then you all get the same product. And so, you know. It's not differentiated. And by the way, from a vendor perspective, that's actually not true. I can have a hundred customers who want the same feature, but if all of them are only putting $10 on the table, the feature's not getting done. Sure. It's going to take one customer who's willing to put the $250 million check on the table and the feature will get done. And it will, and, and it may even be hidden at the behest. I, I shouldn't tell you this at the behest of that customer because it is strategic advantage for them. Sure. But I think you could also have the other situation too, where if, you know, if you had a lot of customers with a, a certain amount of spend, you could end up just funding a common utility. Right. And yeah, right. Right. Well, and this is, this is one of those things, right. Where a lot of times, and this is kind of a complaint of mine about vendors in general, this is not, you know, any specific vendor that I'm talking about. Vendors tend to follow what their customers want. So the customers end up driving new features. One of the interesting aspects of open source, and it didn't used to be that way, by the way. When I first started at Cisco, Cisco was driving new features. I was driving new features into Cisco. I was coding new features without permission, releasing them into the stream. In fact, we used to play games. We used to commit, I shouldn't tell you this, but we used to commit the CLI for a feature in along with another defect while we were messing with the CLI for another defect. And then we would file a defect that the CLI was in place and it wasn't working. And therefore we had to fix the problem. So we either had to take the CLI out or we had to make the feature go. And it was often easier to make the feature go than it was to take the CLI out, which was the point was to get a feature in even though we didn't have any customers asking for it. 
So there used to be a time when vendors drove features. Nowadays, that's really not true for the most part. There are some exceptions here and there, but by and large, um, customers drive feature sets. So the interesting thing about this with open source is, is it is an opportunity to turn the boat around and to have a single, not vendor, but customer who feels strongly enough about getting something done to say, I'm going to implement this and hire a coder or write a contract to get it done. Because there are companies out there you can write contracts with to, to write open source code for you. You don't have to write the code, code yourself or have a coder on staff. Um, you can go to NetDev or you can go to LabIn and you can say, I want this piece of code done in IPsec or BGP or whatever it is, and they'll code it. And they'll give you a price and they'll code it. Um, so you can do that kind of thing as an individual customer. Now, of course, the, 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 the downside of that is what you were saying before, Tom, about not differentiating is you're still releasing it into open source. And Jeff yeah, has something think... to say. He's raising his hand, <laughs> which you don't have to do, Jeff. This is the hedge. You I'm just, trying to be polite. Just... I mean, some people actually might think I'm polite, so <laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, what I'm trying to say, what's important here is to build your product to the degree network effect kicks in. As we know, we see defined network effect is when platform benefits from uh, uh, every additional written rider to the platform. In case of FRR, it's exactly the case. We already have table, well-developed platform, and I'm abusing uh, Daniel's time as much as I can, right, for example, for free. Uh, yeah. yeah. So when you get someone like Luberger or other people who work on top coming, anything they do on top, even commercially, which is completely viable business, right, benefits the platform because, as we all know, working on routing for a long time, the devil is in detail. So this combination of features that break the product. Yep. BGP on itself works beautifully. Try to enable 25 address summaries and do stuff with it. Guess what? It's going to choke at some point. So people testing these different use cases, taking different angles, really make product robust. And this is what really benefits it. Another point I wanted to make, having worked for large companies, Conway Slow is always taken. So Conway Slow states that uh, software design always follows that of organization. Right. Right. So if your organization screwed up, guess what? Your software is going to be screwed up. In open source community, outside of OpenStack, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, we can name a yeah, few. I was going to say. I, yeah. I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> uh, people tend not to follow the Conway Law. They actually try to build software that works, that's well documented, and has... APIs that are documented and in most cases backwards compatible. So if you come from one place, I come from another, we can still interwork. I think it's a very important property that a lot of people underestimate when thinking open source. That's a that's a great point. I hadn't thought of, Jeff, that you you by definition have to cooperate and interoperate um, if you're working on a on an on an open source project. Yeah, I mean, I guess the clue, yeah. the clue is in the detail. I mean, what's the primary motivations of commercial software? I mean, the clue is in the name. It's commercial. It's to it's to make money, um, and then potentially solve problems after that. Um, I know that's a little bit controversial, but I mean, they're not there for altruistic means. They're there to make money. Open source, yep, it can make money, but generally, it started because someone is either trying to solve an existing problem or can see a problem that's going going to occur and they're trying to address that first. 
that making money is a secondary motivation. Yeah, or or motivation that comes after. I mean, Kafka is a perfect example, right? Started at LinkedIn because, hey, LinkedIn had a problem ingesting stuff, right? How do I ingest all this data in my network? What do I do with this stuff? So they created this piece of software and then they spun a company out to make that into a quasi-commercial. A lot of people don't know that, but yeah, they spun a company out in order to make it into a quasi-commercial. So it is still open source. Now I kind of want to also return to another thing that we were talking about, which was security and not just security. All right, this is gonna sound really weird, but on my laptop right now in front of me is a full copy of the FR routing source code. Nice, nerd. Which, nerd, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I bet you is Jeff has a copy of his. Or... It is a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it is a compliment. Exactly. <laughs> so why do I keep, a copy of FR routing on my laptop. I'll tell you why, because if somebody asks me a question about BGP, I can either go read the RFC, which by the way, quite often RFCs are written to intentionally be a bit murky and not completely, or they're written in a way that's designed to make implementation easy, not how the, how the protocol works easy. Okay, look at the OSPFP2 RFC. It's very, very good at making you understand how to implement this thing. But you try to figure out how to make it work or how it works, and you're all over the place looking at this and that and the other because this appendix has that bit of information that you need, and then that appendix has this other bit of information, and then you've got to go look at this chart or this table to figure out the neighbor states and this, that, and the other, which is all cool for an implementer, but for somebody who's just trying to understand it as a network engineer, it's not intentionally written to be bad in that way. It's just it's written for implementers, whereas the source code, I can go figure out how it actually is implemented. How does it work? And I guess the larger point there is that one of the great things about open source in my book is that you can go look at the source code and figure out what it's doing. Of course, that assumes you know how to read the code. So maybe that's a too big of an assumption. <laughs> well, it's transparency, right? So there's, there's transparency. I, I haven't used FRR routing, so forgive me if I'm, you know, got it a little bit accurate for the inaccurate for that example, but, you know, there's transparency and what their testing strategy is, what their their unit tests are, what their coverage tests are, you know, what documentation is in inside the actual code, how well is it formatted, how coherent is it, how often is it maintained or updated. So, so by being transparent, uh, you know, it's there for you to see. There's there's no smoke and mirrors. You can you can see you can um, almost uh, get a an insight into the mindset of the quality of the engineers that are working on the project and, and what their philosophies are as engineers themselves. I have a, um, this made me think of something, uh, Daniel, we were saying I was, I was trying to understand something with something with label allocation. I can't remember exactly what the question was. It was something about where does, um, you know, as far as how the, how the label manager process in a, in a, in a big iron works, like how do, how do you get, what label ranges are allocated and cause I don't see any configuration or any default configuration. I asked this question in a, in a, a Slack somewhere and somebody, um, I don't remember who it was. Somebody pointed me to some source code. I don't know if it was FRR LDPD or something, but, um, pointed me to some source code and said, well, this should answer your question. And I looked at it and even though I don't write C, um, I can read it well enough and I comprehended the answer to my question. And, and I think this is just what Russ was saying. I think that there's, there's huge value in um, in comprehending how the system works a, a ton, and it's just it's just a lot shorter journey to comprehend how a system works when you can look at the code and and 
it's not it's not a huge impossible lift to ask people to read source code. I don't think, um, especially engineers. Especially for those of us who are older right. and started with C, you could do pretty much anything. Kids who started with yeah. other stuff. When they look at C code, <laughs> yeah. it's like really. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a good piece of advice: if you're if you're learning to code, learn C, because if you know C, you can pretty much read anything else. If you learn Python. I mean, it's a good language to learn. I'm not saying it's wrong to learn Python. I'm just saying, hey, you're not going to be able to learn C very quickly, or you're not going to be able to read C natively if you just know Python. But if you know C, Rust and C++ and Python and TCL and everything is just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. I see what you did there. I understand that now. Um, so that's that's it. Yeah, after your first null pointer, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or your first crash because you overwrote the bounds on an, an array. Uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, it's pretty It's pretty true. Uh, but I think beyond that, that also speaks to the security situation a little bit, that you can actually read the source code, that you actually have the ability to see, is this, what happened here? If somebody launches a DDoS attack or does an attack against you, you can actually look at it and say, oh, I can see now where that buffer was overrun. I can see what happened there. Now I can actually open a defect and have that fixed, right? And I don't, I don't think... Like one of the things I wanted, I wanted to see what you guys thought about this. One of the things that I hear a lot is it's just too hard um, to assemble open source or to comprehend a system, how it really works. It's just, I don't have the time. I can't invest, you know, a year in learning how to do this open source thing or, or you know, to me, I, I haven't seen, I haven't seen the difficulty. I mean, it's challenging to get started on a few topics, but I don't, I just don't think it's as hard as as it kind of gets the reputation for that it's an impossible task for you to integrate open source software and, and glue stuff together. But what do you guys think? Uh, I think that um, products, you know, rise and fall and technologies rise and fall. And um, if you don't have a growth mindset or an ability to learn new things um, or accept that things will change, you're going to have difficulties no matter what you do inside information technology i mean realistically as an industry it's it's the only the only certainty about it is that it is constantly changing so i feel that people say it's impossible to understand might not have um, grasped the concept or or the world that they actually live in um i think i think tom you're saying that it's not impossible to do is probably because you as a person have probably throughout your whole career and maybe before you even start in the information technology, have certain behavioral traits or character traits whereby, you know, you accept that, you know, you're going to have to learn new things all the time and that it either excites you, motivates you, or um, provides some other positive benefit to you. Um, and therefore you keep sticking at it. I've learned a bunch of stuff, obviously nowhere near as enough as you three on the call that I don't use anymore. Um, you know, but, that that's that's the price that's the price that you have to pay if you want to if you want to do this sort of work for any any meaningful amount of time is what i learned today will be you know it might not be as relevant later on i might not use it every single day but it's something that you need to get your head around and accept if you want to be successful i always tell people outside of it that my world is like this the half-life of any skill i learned today is two years two and a half years i don't know maybe five years, let's say five years. So in two and a half years, any skill I learned today is half as useful as it was two and a half years ago. And five years from now, it probably won't be very useful at all. And so, 
you know, this is just a reality. Of course, this goes back to rule 11 and my theory about learning the basics and then you won't be on the treadmill. Yeah. Right? You, you can skip the treadmill. You can run instead of walk when you're learning new things. It's almost like I should finish this book called, um, what is it called? Computer... Pro- computer networking problems and solutions, problems that, I start, solutions. that I started reading <laughs> chapter one and, and went, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I really need to really need to get back to basics. I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> I don't have any idea. I have a bit different perspective. I mean, been in networking for what, 25 years. I pretty much reuse most of what I've learned. Perhaps not spanning three, but for the rest, Whatever I know oh, about BGP. No, come on. So use a full and what come I build on. on top. Spanning tree is good in EVPN. <laughs> Sorry. I no, can't I believe I'm hearing you. <laughs> <laughs> Russ, you have lost Sorry. your license to harass me about my blog as a result of that comment. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> it's Jeff. I just have to give him a hard time. So go ahead, Jeff. But in general... I mean, things don't change this fast, right? If you've learned SPF with two 15 years ago, it didn't really change significantly. Okay, we got some new stuff. We can use TLV encoding on some great stuff, right? But SPF is SPF. Same goes to BGP. It didn't really change since we published the secondary C. So it's not thrown away t- time. You, you just become better at it. Right, right. And if you, if you read the RFC first time, and you try to code, you get really naive stuff, right? It doesn't really work with more than five peers or 20 prefixes. But as you try it over the years, suddenly you figure out that you need to do it one way. You need to figure out how to do this way. You need to cache policies, right? But you figure out, you just become better. So you always reuse the foundation. It doesn't go away. There's always value of learning stuff. So potentially the, um, the, yeah. the fundamentals don't change, but the application of all the techniques used to apply those fundamentals are the things that, that regularly change. That's, that's maybe, that's maybe that's where correct. we, um, the distinction should be. That's right. That's right. There are four problems you have to solve to transport data across a network. That's the RENA model. This is why I teach the RENA model instead of the OSI model. There are four problems. For every one of those four problems, there are either four sub-problems or there are four solutions. That's pretty much the way it works. I mean, there's three to five. Okay, maybe sometimes there's only three. Sometimes there's five or six. But generally speaking, if you hit a problem and you can only think of one solution, you better stop before you implement that solution. You better think of three more. Because generally speaking, there's going to be four solutions. Three of those might be totally ridiculous, but they are still solutions. So don't give up until you've... I I just call it the rule of four. And I just, I just think that's the way it is. I know there's, I know there's a mystery by that name too, the rule of four or whatever it is. <laughs> and you, you know, there are daily discussions on LinkedIn. Learning Python will make you a great network engineer. No, it won't. If you were a bad engineer before, you're going to be even worse engineer after because now you're going to automate all the stuff you did before. Fail <laughs> with 100% consistency. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> If before you would have killed one switch, now you're going to kill thousands. Good yeah, for you. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that pretty much covers open source. I mean, I don't have anything else to think about. I mean, I think we've talked a little bit. We didn't talk too much about supply chain security, uh, but I think that's almost a separate show. I think we could do a whole show just on supply chain security and open source and what that means and stuff like that. So maybe we'll schedule that for later rather than continuing. 
And I think we've pretty much covered what we wanted to cover, though. Thoughts, Tom? Anything no, else? This has been good. Thank you, Jeff yeah. and Daniel. Right. It's been a great conversation. Thanks a lot for having me on here. Again, um, re real honor to yeah. um, meet all three of you. And yeah, I definitely need to finish that book that I started um, <laughs> and maybe get in touch with the author about it. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah. So, Jeff, I'll start with you. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, email. I just wanted to add one more stuff. Okay, go right ahead. There was famous poet in Georgia in 15th century that said, what you give stays forever, what you keep to yourself dies with you. Same goes to open source. The more you share, the more you do for community, the better you become because your stuff keeps, you know, it's not your children, but it's close. <laughs> Whatever you keep to yourself, it just dies with you. It didn't do any good to anything. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that in the FR routing slack, Jeff. <laughs> it's not your children, but it's close. I like that. <laughs> Tom, where can people get in touch Twitter with Twitter and LinkedIn? Tom Ammon. Twitter mm -hmm. and LinkedIn. I know he's got some blog posts in him someplace. It's coming. It's it's getting there. It's coming. I know it is. So Daniel, Daniel, where can people get in touch with you? Do you blog or anything? Or are you like one of these other people who doesn't blog? <laughs> oh, we don't fly these kind of people around. I have a blog. Uh, my blog is uh, blog.danielteshney.com. I might get you to add that to the show notes or uh, people can re reach reach me on there. I'm also on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn um, at Daniel Teshney and I'm also on GitHub as well. Um, my username on GitHub is writememe, W-R-I-T-E-M-E-M-E. -E -M -E. All right, cool. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech here at The Hedge, History of Networking, blah, 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 LinkedIn. Just don't PM me on Twitter, okay? It's just, it goes to my spam folder and I never answer it. Sorry, it just doesn't happen. So thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.